Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the first book of Kings, the third chapter, verses 5 through 15. Hear the word of God. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I am only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you will arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you, If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. Then Solomon awoke. It had been a dream. He came to Jerusalem, where he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He offered up burnt offerings and offerings of well-being and provided a feast for all his servants. The word of the Lord. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Would you be able to fly or maybe become invisible? Would you want super strength or a golden touch? If you could have anything, what would you want? God approached Solomon with an offer just like that, except it was not a hypothetical. The all-powerful, living, loving God drifted into Solomon's dream, arising like a genie from a lamp to say, I can grant you one wish. Ask what I should give you, God said. It was a generous offer, an offer out of a dream but it was also an offer as perilous as it was promising. Because the fantasy of getting just what you want always has a dark side. Just think, 
If there were not some kind of conflict, some catch to instant gratification, a Disney classic like Cinderella or Aladdin would be a total snooze. The fairy godmother's power is temporary. That coach turns back into a pumpkin. And in Aladdin's case, unlimited power brings on the temptation to serve only himself at the expense of others. The point of these stories is that opportunities to have it all cannot be trusted. We get it. We know to be suspicious of get-rich-quick schemes. We know that wanting something, no matter how badly, does not make it so, and that even if we are successful, our success can always, always be lost. That's the curse of the lottery. Research has shown that 70% of lottery winners wind up broke within just a few years. And on top of that, many winners also claim to suffer extreme, devastating personal losses, ironically, because they won the lottery. Jack Whitaker, who won over $300 million, started out with good intentions. He gave $15 million to his church. But it wasn't long before Jack started to experience the curse. He saw his relationships change because of his wealth. Suddenly, even his best friends were pestering him for a piece of the pie. And many legal claims were made on Jack and on his businesses, and that really stressed him out. So he started drinking a lot and spending his millions in highly prodigal fashion. One night, he was robbed of thousands of dollars in a strip club parking lot. He was giving his beloved only granddaughter a $2,000 weekly allowance, but she started using that money to buy drugs. My daughter, my granddaughter is dead because of that money, Jack said. In the end, he wished he had torn the ticket up because the cost had really been too great. I don't like Jack Whitaker anymore, he said. I don't like this hard heart I've got. I don't like who I've become. Be careful what you wish for. If I were in Solomon's place, that old saying might have crossed my mind, be careful. Now, of course, this is God, and God is good. God gives good gifts. But if God said to me, ask what I should give you, I might hesitate. I might even want to avoid the risk and the riddle altogether and to turn it back on God. I don't know, God. You tell me. What do I need? Isn't this really up to you? But Solomon, the newly minted king of Israel, was ready with his answer. Maybe he had played would you rather enough times to know his preferred superpower. But more likely, with David as his father, Solomon was simply prepared to be in a close, unguarded relationship with God. He had a good model for that in his dad. 
Solomon knew that he was beloved like his father before him, so he could answer God's question with confidence. And at the same time, just like, so just like David at his best, Solomon revered God as God. Solomon knew his own lowly place in the big picture. Solomon was humble, just a little child when compared to God, merely a servant in God's kingdom, given the task only for now of governing God's great people. Solomon, in other words, was a person in right relationship with God, at least right now in this dream, and that directly influenced what he asked God for. Solomon knew exactly what to request, an understanding mind, or better translated, a hearing heart, a listening heart. Notice that he did not ask for wisdom, not exactly, though this story often gets told that way. He asked for a listening heart, like an inner ear that could hear God's voice. He asked that God's signal would always cut through the noise of his life so that he could make those hard decisions of governance with ease. A listening heart. It's a great answer. What a gift it would be to hear God's voice coming through loud and clear, to have perfect spiritual reception even when your journey is taking you far outside your service area. It sounds like a dream come true, really. But between us, if I had been in Solomon's place, I might still have asked for something else. Like, I might have asked for someone else to have this big responsibility, or at least I would have asked for a helper, you know, like Moses had Aaron. Or I might have asked God to guarantee peace and prosperity during my reign. Come on, God, just let everything be okay so I don't have so much to worry about. And in a violent world with threats surrounding, I might have just asked to survive. Save me, God. Deliver me. But a listening heart? Because as painful as it is to admit, we do not want to hear God better. We know well that when stress and distractions are mounting, we don't tune in, we tune out. We take a nap, clean the house, turn the music up, watch one more episode, play one more round. And honestly, many of us would rather have a God we can tell things to than a God we have to listen to. Listening to God takes silence and waiting and patience and wondering and second-guessing and doubting and trying and failing and waiting once again for that voice. I'd prefer to fly. I'd prefer to be invisible. These are fantasies of freedom. There's no fantasy of obedience. 
Most of the time, we would rather have a God we can use toward our ends rather than to let God use us. And we can justify that position. Look at Solomon. Taking a chance on a close relationship with God did not make him better off exactly. It seemed like it would. God approved of Solomon's wish and ended up offering him not only the listening heart, but everything else he could want. Wealth, long life, security. But there seems to have been a catch. If God indeed gave Solomon a listening heart, over time, it went deaf. Solomon became notorious in Israel for worshiping other gods. That's behavior that hardly, hardly makes sense for someone attuned to the one true living God. And because of his shortcomings, because of his idolatry, Solomon's kingdom came to a dark end, dissolving into sectarian conflict. So you have to wonder, was Solomon's listening heart ever even real? Or was it just a dream? We can easily dismiss the stuff of dreams. Sure, dreams can sometimes seem meaningful, even revelatory. You awake with some insight about yourself or some situation of your life. But if you're anything like me, you also know how random and ridiculous dreams can be. We can all see how our dreams are a patchwork of the conversations we have, the movies we watch, our hopes, our fears, our memories. I've been showing up late for the same calculus exam for over a decade now. <laughs> and that's just a dream. Thank God. And I have held buried treasure only to awake with empty hands. It's just a dream. It's just me. Even the ancients hesitated to assign too much meaning to dreams. Sometime after Solomon's rule, Jeremiah railed against his rival prophets because they were trafficking in lying dreams. They were confusing people about what God was really up to. Over 2,000 years later, with the Enlightenment in the rear view, the last thing we want is to be taken for fools. Experiences of God are rare and fleeting. This is partly because we hold ourselves back from them, heeding our own inner dialogue or the voices of our generation, rather than God's voice. But divine experiences are also, in and of themselves, a bit dreamlike. They're beyond what normally counts as real and reliable, what can usually be said to matter. Solomon did not wake up with much to hold on to, and so we too can find ourselves desperately grasping at faith amidst the stress and uncertainty and responsibilities of our lives. Basing your life on something for which you have no tangible proof is an embarrassingly foolish task in the 21st century. It's hard. And while it may have been easier in Solomon's time, I can still imagine him waking up and wondering what he could believe. 
But notice, Solomon did not dawdle in bed for long. He did not get stuck. Then Solomon awoke. It had been a dream. He came to Jerusalem. Just like that, from zero to 60, Solomon got moving in the direction of God's holy city. He got moving in the direction of the ark, which was Israel's sign of God's presence among them. He got moving in a Godward direction. The dream was over, but it was also enough for him. Trusting that God was reaching out, he reached back. You see, Solomon had embraced the dream as part of his faith. He let something he could hardly explain take hold of him and lead him forward, not knowing so much as feeling the way. And we have that same opportunity today. However conscious or unconscious you are of God's presence, you have the chance to live as if God's promises are true and to get moving toward God and toward neighbor. We too can learn to live the dream of our faith. Now you might be wondering what that looks like. I'll venture that if we're doing it right, it should look a little foolish, even a little bit crazy. What the church needs, what this world needs, are some Christians who are as crazy as the Lord, Michael Curry has written. Crazy enough to love like Jesus, to give like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with their God like Jesus. Crazy enough to dare to change the world from the nightmare it so often is into something closer to the dream God dreams for it. You have to be crazy to live God's dream. And yet, that is exactly what we are called to do. An intimate relationship with God is a dark journey. It's a path straight through uncertainty. But we dare to travel on. We come before the mystery of God in dumbfounded wonder, but we pour out our sacrifices on the altar and we serve without knowing how or if or when it will matter. That's faith. That's living the dream in here and out there. Not so many years ago, there was a small congregational church in a big city whose main event each summer was a strawberry festival. It used to draw the whole neighborhood together. Hundreds of people would come flooding into the fellowship hall, and there would be thousands of ripe red berries covering table after table after table. But hard times hit the city, and soon the neighborhood began to decline. Year after year, businesses closed and buildings fell into disrepair. Year after year, crime increased and people moved out, including many in the church. But year after year, that church threw its strawberry festival. They'd be setting up the same two, three hundred chairs for maybe two dozen people and piling the strawberry baskets high, even though very few would be eaten at the end of the day. 
Now you tell me, was that church being nostalgic and misguided? Or were they living into their hope in God, trusting God, who is and always has been and always will be the God of abundance? A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to go to Monte Cristo for the first time. I spent an hour there with just a handful of volunteers and staff unpacking and sorting the bright blue grocery bags this congregation had put together for the food pantry. Now, there are a few things I always notice about hunger ministries, and the first is that they are simple. It's simple work. You brought the food here in those blue bags, we delivered it to Manos and put it away, and later some other folks would come, take, and eat it. It's very simple. And it's also small. That's the second thing. The pantry is a small room. It's no more than eight shelves of food. And there's an, always a moment for me in places like these of feeling the sheer inadequacy of our efforts to serve people who are poor. That pantry is small. And you look around and the clinic at Manos is full with patients overflowing into the hallway, 20 people and it's only 10 in the morning. There's so much need. And yet, and yet, as bag after bag plops onto the sorting table and the shelves are packed to the point that you're squeezing cans and boxes on in funny configurations and extra boxes need to be fetched so that you can store everything and conversation starts flowing and laughter is ringing and life is bubbling up. You can see that what is small and simple is growing into something much bigger. People working side by side for the sake of love. It's everything. It's everything. You start to see God's dream right there coming alive. The poet Mary Oliver has written, I want to see Jesus, maybe in the clouds or on the shore, just walking, beautiful man, and clearly someone else besides. On the hard days, I ask myself if I ever will. Also, there are times when my body whispers to me that I have. We have seen him. We do. Not always with our eyes, but with our hearts. We know somehow, deep within, beyond words, beyond wisdom, that God's dream is real, God's promises sure, and God's claim on our lives irresistible. So here's Solomon, awakening. And there he is, watching the smoke rise so high it can barely be seen, and setting a feast for the least of his kingdom. Amen.